Welcome to another edition of MFS's Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Almeida. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. In this episode, I'm joined by two members from our financial services sector team, Andrew Quattrali, U.S. Equity Bank Analyst, and Patrick Londrigan, U.S. Credit Bank Analyst. We discuss the similarities and differences of today's bank and loan environment to 2008. You know, most cycles end because the collateral used to finance growth goes awry. My guests talk about where the credit risks are today and how they think about that. Andrew, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Andrew, let's start with you in simple terms as a bank equity analyst. What's important to you? So, many things, obviously, um, but I would say my formative years as a personal investor were in the mid 2000s, and I've been at MFS for 12 years now. So, I have a chronic insecurity about <laughs> downside risk. Um, and, and so, my investing rule number one is survive, and that's kind of the only rule. And so, because of that, as a bank analyst, these companies are levered 10 to 1 you have to focus on what can blow you up. And so in any given quarter, loan growth or interest rates or expenses could drive the stock. But in the long run, given enough time, I think it's credit losses. Yeah. And so it's not necessarily the most frequent driver, but it definitely is the most impactful in terms of magnitude of impact um, that you'll see across multiple cycles. So follow up to that. That sounds easy. I'm sure it isn't. How do you dig into and, and think about those risks? Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a great question. And there, there's no easy answer. Um, I think a few things. If you could per, if you could have perfect information, the companies with the best underwriting would be the ones you'd want to focus on. I think that's really difficult. So you have to come up with different proxies. Um, I personally choose loss absorbing capacity who assume everyone is a bad underwriter who has the most ability to absorb losses, both on the income statement in the form of profit, stable revenue and profitability, and on the balance sheet in the form of reserves, capital, um, lower risk asset classes and things like that. But um, I think markets are pretty efficient. They're generally pretty good at this stuff. Um, but at the same time, I think when you have an asymmetry potentially as big as as credit risk, you're, you're always going to be undershooting. And so if you can be prepared and just avoid the losers, yeah. the way you really get destroyed in banks um, is permanent capital destruction. So issuing equity at the bottom of the cycle. And so you're really, you don't necessarily need the, the fastest horse in the race. You just need to avoid the ones that are in, in last place. Right. So, and like you were saying, um, assume the worst and just pick the companies or pick the banks that can absorb the worst possible outcomes. Is that, is that yeah. a good summation? Where if, and, and these are, these are commodity cyclical, so I right. want to be careful. They're all correlated. They're all very similar, but if the ones that have the most loss absorbing capacity, the best underwriting and things like that, if they're failing, we're, I don't have a job anyway. Everything is, is gone, <laughs> right. gone away, and, and we're in a lot bigger problems. So well, maybe that's a good segue. Um, so give us a window into credit risk today, the similarities, differences to what happened in, in 2008, or, or maybe to ask it differently, what scares you right now? Yeah, it, it's gr another great question. I think in general, most macro indicators of credit stress are better than the last cycle. Okay. Um, with, with that said, we haven't seen this environment maybe ever. Um, and so you you have to be conscious of things that, that could be very different. And, and so, as I mentioned, as a bank analyst, you have to worry about everything. And, and so it's not hard to come up with narratives for a lot of different asset classes, whether it's commercial real estate, things like office, hospitality, retail, senior housing, or on the consumer side, 
personal loans, buy now, pay later, auto loans. And so every bank has concerning exposures. Um, if I had to pick a single pain point, though, I would probably argue it's the non-bank lending, it's the leveraged lending markets that create the potential for much bigger ripples um, to, to sort of to move through the economy relative to last cycle, um, which probably had more of a consumer real estate skew. Um, in terms of sort of direct risks to the banking system, um, some banks have very little in the way of leveraged loans or, or no loans to non-bank financials. Um, others have 10 to 15% of loans in sort of those categories. And so while that may not seem like much, I think you have to remember that banks are levered. And so even small exposures equal large exposures relative to their tangible common equity bases. So even a small risk could be magnified into a large risk. With that said, I think a lot of these risks are outside the banking system, um, which is good on a first order impact. But the second order impact is that a lot of these highly levered companies are the suppliers or customers of other companies. They also, they're employers of people. And so it's not hard to see sort of some sort of contagion event uh, manifest if you start to see failures at a higher rate, even if it's outside the banking system in the first order. So it's interesting when we think about loans and money creation. I mean, ultimately, demand creates its loan supply, right? So if there's companies out there that want capital, they'll, they'll get it. And, and you both have been talking about um, post-2008, um, substantial amount of money creation, but it, those loans weren't uh, issued by, by the banks un, under your coverage. So maybe, Patrick, shifting to you, talk about uh, that growth in non-financial corporate leverage. You know, Walk us through um, you know, how it got started and where are we now? Sure. So Andrew talked a lot about cycles, and I think the economy moves in cycles, and that includes lending markets as well. And so, you know, when you're looking at non non financial corporate lending, it really comes back to private equity and and the origination of that market in the '70s and before that. A lot of corporate lending was done by the banks predominantly, and that changed a bit in the 80s. You had the rise of LBOs, um, and all of these cycles really take place with, you know, a new kind of lending vehicle being created, and then you get a lot of growth and exuberance in that asset class, and then you get a correction and a loss cycle. Um, And so, you know, the first cycle there was in the 80s, and the the lending vehicle was high-yield bonds, and there's a lot written about that, and you had the correction there in the yeah. late the 80s, Milken early 90s. Exactly. And, yeah. and then in the 90s, you had the beginnings of the syndicated leveraged loan market. You had the correction there um, in the early 2000s with the telco bust and yep. uh, the tech bubble. And then after that, you had uh, CLOs and structured products, a lot of these innovations. And that was a very short cycle. And the leverage and the sponsored credit market really didn't get to the peaks that it had in the late 80s and in the early 2000s. And then you look at this cycle where we are right now, and it's been a very long cycle. So I would say that that reset and leverage came after the GFC. So we've been in this cycle for about 15 years. And I think this is a very unique cycle because you've had historically low interest rates, which have really pushed institutional and retail investors towards higher yielding, higher risk fixed income products. And and those low rates have also allowed private equity and sponsored credit to put more leverage on their portfolios. I think, you know, potentially now with all the discussions about inflation and the Fed raising interest rates, we're, we're at a really important inflection where I think that the borrowing costs for these borrowers are going to get a lot higher. You know, 90 plus percent of these loans are, are floating rate. Uh, and that's going to put a big um, 
a big damper on on their ability to to service that debt going forward potentially, and especially if you know growth is lower. So you mentioned private equity LBOs. Walk us through how that model, how that funding model works, and and because you mentioned it was such a, a big source of growth. Yeah, sure. So really, when a private equity company is looking to capitalize the debt portion of their capital structure, there's a bunch of markets that they would look to where you can put more leverage on these companies and still get the financing done. And really, I mentioned the high yield market. That was historically the first market that opened this up. You know, Also, the levered loan market. Um, and then more recently, there's been a move towards uh, direct lending. So private equity companies really directly lending to uh, borrowers. And then really the private equity companies, you know, put a, put these investments in a, a number of different vehicles. They can be in CLOs, publicly traded funds like ours in, high, in the high yield space, yep. um, BDCs, business development companies, which is essentially a REIT for corporate debt. Um, and also directly just in um, separately managed accounts type of vehicles, private equity funds. And, and, and most of these funds have underlying leverage um, on the bottom funding these exposures. So Andrew talked about exposures that the banks have to non-bank financials. And really what that is, is financing these portfolios of credit assets right. through these different CLOs, BDCs, and private equity funds on a secured basis. So in, in 2007, you had, well, leading up to 2008, let me start there. You had massive securitization of mortgages, and then there also auto loans, car loans, et cetera. And all that was packaged in the, into products and portfolios and, and sold to financial institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm, I'm hearing you guys describe is we saw something similar in the non bank corporate space, and that was packaged into collateralized loan obligations and maybe sold directly to BDCs, et cetera. And you know, I recall back in, in 08, or really post-08, we had a substantial amount and probably necessary regulation to uh, address all that. So mm-hmm. have regulators been looking at that over the last few years, or are they looking at it now, or what are you seeing or hearing? So there's a lot of different dynamics here. I would say that those older markets like mm-hmm. high yield and levered loans are much more regulated and banks are actually really prohibited from owning that those kinds of things directly. I would say the newer markets, and I think this is generally the case, is these newer debt vehicles are always less regulated than the legacy vehicles. And so sure. that it makes sense that that's where you've seen most of the growth because the regulation there is lightest. <laughs> right. right. Right, water finds its right level, and yes, yeah, exactly. It. All right, so maybe Q, coming back to you, um, what's the potential size of this market? I mean, I, I guess put this in context for us. How do we think about all this? Yeah, I mean, the, the direct exposure again isn't huge. You're talking, I mean, it's huge in nominal terms. You're talking yeah. hundreds of millions, if not a, a trillion um, dollars uh, in terms of d- direct exposure to banks. It, it, it's not enormous. Again, it's it's more just does is this the the first domino to fall, right. um, as I mentioned, because these companies they are the suppliers and customers of other companies, and they're yeah. the em- they're the employers of many people and things like that. And so, how big has this market gotten, and and how much of a ripple effect does it have? And I think the answer is is we don't know. Yeah. Um, so I think we're we have to be prepared for the extreme tail risk uh, um, as investors. Um, but ultimately, I think uh, 
I think our process, I, I can speak for most bank analysts here, is that we were prepared for that, but we're also prepared for a lot of different tail risks and, and opportunities. And so this is definitely one we want to be on the right side of because of the sheer magnitude of impact. Right. Right. That makes sense. All right. So switching gears away from corporate loans, Patrick, let's come back to you. Talk about consumer loans. So the consumer isn't stressed right now, although we are seeing stress in the lower income cohorts. Their savings were spent. Inflation's impacting their wallets. Um, higher prices and non-discretionary items like gas and rent, et cetera, it's, it's pulling demand from them. Uh, won't this become a problem too? I think it has the potential to become a problem, Rob. I think the good news is that we're starting from extremely low levels of aggregate consumer debt relative to incomes. Um, but you have seen it, you know, an indicator that we really like to look at is the credit card pay, pay down rate. So how yep. much how much money are consumers paying down on their credit cards every month? And that rate is still historically very, very high. It has come off of its peak recently, I think, due to the factors that you mentioned, inflation, um, and then, but you know, I think that this, the reason that this is staying so high is because you, you, initial claims have stayed within the box. That's another indicator that we like yeah. to look at new, uh, jobless formation. Um, and, and the, the job market remains very strong, but I think, you know, there's clearly pressure on the job market going forward, with the fed tightening so dramatically, and you've already seen the number of companies announcing layoffs. Um, right. and mostly that's been in technology companies and, and newer startup type companies but I think you know there's potential for that to spread I think right. that I think the key the key really there is that losses are basically at zero right now so they can only really go in one direction and so don't necessarily know how bad they ultimately get but can't really get better than zero losses and so <laughs> these are in a lot of cases the many of these fast growing debt categories are unsecured things like credit cards personal loans buy now pay later and so these are categories that we either don't have loss history for or have losses that sometimes exceed 10%. Yeah. I mean, f full disclosure for the audience and the reason you guys are here. So you were talking about this in a financial services sector team meeting, maybe a, a month or so back. And what you were presenting to the group, um, and not to sound like an alarmist, but it just it just really struck me. And, and there's so many similarities and parallels to, oh, seven and, and eight. Again, it, it's different. Every cycle is different. If you've seen one crisis, you've seen one crisis. So everyone is different. So I'm not suggesting that there's a, a banking crisis. And I think you've, your your research and your conclusions was we're probably not going to see that. But you never see the bullet that hits you. And so it's the second and third or fourth order effects. And so if you've got a trillion dollars of potentially, I don't want to say bad, but lower quality corporate loans that their uh, funding uh, or payback policy was just rolling the debt forward. And to your points earlier, rates are now higher. Maybe credit is less fungible. Um, you really start having to think about all these other second or third order effects that maybe you didn't have to think about before when interest rates were in a secular fall. What am I missing? I, I, I think I think that's probably right. I, I think that this is a this is a big enough risk where. If you're going to leg into something cyclical, you probably don't want to do it in something that's levered 10 to 1. You probably want to find a, a, a net cash consumer discretionary or industrial stock if you want to make a, a, macro, a positive macro bet um, and, and probably not do it in, in this space because the tail risk is, oh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to put a probability on it. It's, sure. it's higher than zero. It's non-trivial. And so I think um, you, just, you have to be aware of it, especially because... I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not a macroeconomist, but we could be at, on the precipice of a, 
of a macro regime change in terms of rates, inflation, and things like that. Structurally. It seems like it. Yeah. And and that would and we almost we just I mean I, I was born in 1988, so I didn't live through the 70s. I can read about them, but I didn't live through it. And and so I think it's it's something again gets back to the chronic paranoia that you have to have. From my perspective on the banks, and I, I cover the regional banks on the credit side, the changes that regulators made following the global financial crisis greatly improved capital and liquidity at U.S. banks and in global banks for that matter. And so that should protect them in a downturn. There's a lot greater buffer to absorb stress. But if you look at who the predominant underwriters and, and holders of credit are in the U.S. economy and increasingly in the global economy, it's non-banks. And so problems with the non-banks can have a much more dramatic impact on the availability of credit to the economy than it did in the past. And there's perpetually the, the risk that regulators fought the last war. Right. Exactly. Yeah, penultimate preparedness. And, and so if you just think about like, especially right now, if we are in a paradigm change, like one of the things that always happens is rates go to zero in stress, you get liquidity injections. What if we don't have that this time? Right. And so again, I, I'm not saying that any of this definitely happens or I have a high probability on it, but it, you just have to be prepared that it's it's a non-trivial probability. Well, in the example you use, don't mention the company's name, even though they're private, but I think Patrick, you were talking about this. Um, local, well, local meaning here in the Northeast or, or Atlantic region company that is levered 11 to 1, I think. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty yeah. ex- extreme. Um, I mean, the ability to meet and fulfill debt obligations at 11 to 1, to me, it seems like an incredibly high hurdle. Mm-hmm. And that's when interest rates were 200 basis points lower than where they are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I won't mention the name of the company, but this is one of the problems with this non the non-bank corporate lending especially direct lending is the yeah. lack of transparency and there there was a little bit of transparency in that company that I cited because they were moving their capital structure from um, a more transparent market to to these new direct lending markets and you know the the underwriters didn't see 11 times leverage right there was ad backs um, and assumptions about cost savings yeah. related to an acquisition but the rating agencies had s- saw leverage at 11 times. And so there's this disconnect, I think, between where a more conservative underwriter would see leverage and where a sponsor would see leverage with all these assumptions and addbacks that they're putting into their calculations for earnings. So taking everything, tell me if this is too uh, simplistic of a view. Leading up to 08, it was a buildup and overinvestment and ultimately a crisis about the lender. Right, your 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 coverage back then. Fast forward 12, 13, 14 years later, the overinvestment leverage in the real economy shifted away from financials banks to you call them non-bank financials, and so the next crisis should be about the corporate borrower. Is that fair? I think p- potentially. It depends on the outcomes in terms of inflation, interest rates, and real economic growth is what drives the credit quality of corporate borrowers. Um, And if we get a period of strong growth, they might have time to reset the leverage levels lower to a more appropriate level for the level of interest rates. But if we have a sharp correction in real growth and economic activity, having had those companies come into this period with very historically high leverage, yeah. you know, that could be yeah. a, a bigger problem. So it really, it depends on the trajectory, I would say, of 
of growth and inflation. So there's a pathway to work out of it, but you yes. need you need materially better growth than maybe what you're seeing yeah. now or or different trajectory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, I would say it's cer- certainly possible. A little bit out of my my core competency of of the company specifics, but but yeah, definitely seems like a like a plausible scenario. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. This is uh, illuminating, a little frightening, but appreciate it very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this and past conversations in this series, please subscribe to the MFS Strategist Corner podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All MFS podcasts, along with other market and investment commentaries from MFS, can also be found at our website, mfs.com. Again, thank you. Thank you.